Welcome to the Intercollegiate. I'm Daniel Libet. This is episode 16. Alrighty, it has been a while. So before we get on with today's show, let me dispense with an update of sorts. As it were, a rather trifling consequence of the coronavirus pandemic has been the preemption of this regularly scheduled broadcast and really the rest of what we've been up to at the Intercollegiate. Basically, as of early last month, when the potential horror of COVID-19 was beginning to dawn in American minds, the machinery here effectively ground to a halt. Some of this was logistical and personal. My family and I were due to go on a trip to Los Angeles on March 5th, which I decided to abort at last minute. I yanked our kid out of daycare by the next week and was making my way to Costco about a fortnight before it seemed like the rest of America came ransacking through. If this gives you some window into the intuitions and mind of your dear host. My co-editor Luke Cyphers and I were then midstream in a collaborative project with a journalism class at the University of Florida, but that class got canceled as every class around the country would soon move online. I had also just taped and had in the can what I thought was a very interesting podcast that then instantly felt anachronistic and irrelevant in the current context. So it was that I instinctively made the decision to put our work on ice for the foreseeable future for all the aforementioned reasons and also because I didn't want to serve in even the smallest way as a distraction for the news and information that I think we should all be concerning ourselves with. Offering a diversion from the real world is very much not what we're about here. The guiding perspective of the intercollegiate is that college sports should be reconciled in the larger context of our society, and that ought to mean that at certain times, like the present moment, it is not wise or useful to obsess over the problems of college sports, even if you've made worrying about college sports like I have, your preoccupation. All of this is to say that we're back today, but not regularly, and the future of the intercollegiate remains to be seen. We're all figuring out this brave new world and what to do with a cause celeb college sports podcast probably ranks among the more feet of first world issues. So we'll leave it at that for now and update accordingly when there's more to share. Anyway, with that long-winded prelude, my guest today seems very right for this moment on multiple fronts. Chuck Staben is a virologist and biologist who teaches at the University of Idaho. He previously served as the school's president from 2014 to 2018. During that time, he presided over Idaho's national headline-grabbing decision to drop down its football program from FBS to FCS, a move that probably contributed in some part to his eventual ouster. As we now look ahead to a near-term future where a COVID vaccine or sufficient herd immunity remains on the distant horizon, we're looking at the likelihood of significant interruptions to the upcoming academic year. It seems, to me at least, Like the college football season is a less than likely proposition, although nobody in authority has quite said as much yet. 
If that's the case, a lot of university presidents will be pressed to weigh the kind of decisions that Idaho grappled with in 2016, including whether FBS football is a worthwhile commitment to carry on. In our conversation, which runs a little over an hour, Chuck and I discuss how voluntary or proactive his decision actually was, and how one in the position of university leadership might try to appraise the cost-benefit analysis of competing in the highest level of college football. And so, without further ado, I give you Chuck Staben. All right, Chuck, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you very much, Daniel. So um, before we get going here, we first connected by phone at the beginning of March in my effort to try to persuade you to be a guest on this podcast. And since that phone call, everything has rather rapidly changed in all of our lives. If I remember correctly, you were about to give some sort of presentation regarding campus preparedness for coronavirus or something coronavirus related at the time. You have a background as both a university administrator and a biologist. Can you refresh my memory on what that was as part of telling me what the last month has been like for you and your campus and your other professional colleagues around the country as you've talked about the way that this pandemic has played out? Sure, uh, Daniel. I I think that this was shortly before a, a webinar I gave on March 7th to about a thousand participants uh, for a small company that does webinars for uh, higher education, often things like student support services, et cetera. And they asked me to give a webinar for them, which I agreed to do. And, and we had about a thousand participants, about 20 times more than they typically have on one of their webinars. Hmm. Um, and, and frankly, in hindsight, it, it, it looks like it was a almost hopelessly naive, you know, you, you better be thinking about this. And then within 10 days, we'd had the cancellation of the NCAA basketball tournament, almost all campuses, and now perhaps all campuses moving to online instruction, et cetera. And, and I was still in what I would call the slow walk phase a little bit, but one of the few, few people in higher ed who I think had seen for a long time that this, this could have uh, some very important uh, effects on higher ed. And um, I actually published, the reason I was invited to give the webinar was in part my background, but also on February 27th, I'd published an opinion piece in, in, in Inside Higher Ed, uh, suggesting that it was time, perhaps well past time in retrospect, to prepare our campuses for coronavirus. And uh, I had actually been following the epidemic sort of from my perspective as a virologist since about January, and even actually included a, a test on my first biochemistry exam, I'm teaching biochemistry, about the protein structure of the spike protein uh, of coronavirus. It's just an interesting, timely biological phenomenon to kind of liven up the course for the students and had been giving them updates on coronavirus, which I'm actually continuing to this day. So long story, uh, I realize, but yes, it, it so much has changed since uh, since whatever date you pick, January, um, when I first became interested personally in the coronavirus, or March when we first talked about it. So I, I this is not going to be the main the main nub of what we talk about, but I'd be remiss given your uh, your academic background not to try to ply your your mind a little bit. 
can you give me from the, the the virus perspective just give me the the brief once over of what makes this so difficult or interesting from a uh, from a research perspective sure sure um well i think what makes it difficult from a more of an epidemiology perspective and i'm not an epidemiologist is that it's it's spread in an airborne way it's a respiratory virus spread in an airborne way much much like the flu in terms of how it's spread but it is apparently more contagious than the flu and of course it causes a more serious disease so you have something that causes uh, on the order of 30 times the morbidity and mortality of the common flu that we see almost every year. We have no immunity to it at all in the population, at, uh, or had no immunity. We may be developing some immunity now. And no vaccine, no treatment. And so, you know, rapid spread by a very easy mechanism, uh, that's kind of a recipe for pandemic disaster, which is what we've unfortunately seen unfold. I would say that at this point, immunity is becoming an important question. We know that there are many asymptomatic cases of COVID-19 in the population. We know there are many symptomatic cases, uh, a city like New York, you know, hundreds of thousands of cases. Um, probably there's significant parts of the population that have had exposure and may have developed antibody. You're starting to see authorities like Anthony Fauci talk about the importance of antibody testing, and I, I couldn't agree more. We need to understand who actually is likely to be immune to this virus and therefore could return to public life and who must continue to shelter in place, particularly in areas like New York City that have you know, really had a major epidemic already. Um, Idaho, we have lower penetrance into the population so far, you know, a little bit later start. Um, we, 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 and, and we've been doing social distancing apparently reasonably well. So we don't have the probably the same level of population penetrance that you see in a New York City. Right, right. Tell me, you mentioned this to me off air, but tell me uh, where where you're speaking to me from and, and give me the tableau. What, is, uh, yeah. what does it look like these days? Well, I'm speaking to you from my normal biology professor office, which is in the biology department at University of Idaho in Moscow, Idaho, largely deserted. I, I haven't seen anyone here. The parking lot next to the office has only my car in it and uh, and has had only my car for the last several days. Uh, I came back to Moscow. I had been living in Boise uh, where my wife practices medicine, but she began practicing uh, on Tuesday. She saw hospitalized patients, including probable COVID patients. And we decided that it was safer for us to separate because she didn't want to bring the disease potentially home to me. Obviously, I don't want her to get it. Uh, and so I moved back to Moscow, where we also have a place to live. And um, the, the town feels very deserted. It's a very much a college town. Most of the students are gone. Undoubtedly, faculty and staff are largely sheltering at home. So we're talking now in, uh, in April. If you were to put your money on the fall semesters of most universities commencing in August, when they would normally mm -hmm. do, what would you say right now? <laughs> I think we also discussed that nobody has a very clear crystal ball on That's this. right. That's why I'm saying I, <laughs> I'm having you put your money and me not put mine. <laughs> right, exactly. And 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 in a sense, our, our universities are, are going to be putting their money on things too. I... I, I don't know. I think, I think it's reasonably likely that 
we will start back up in August, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me if, if we were not able to, uh, and uh, there were some, some delay in that and to January, uh, I think one of the keys to being able to start in August is very widespread antibody testing, frankly. And I think that that's something that as a, as sort of a policy, uh, and, um, and an implementation, we should be preparing for that. We, we sort of missed the boat on viral testing. I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. I'm certainly not saying we shouldn't be doing social distancing, but I think we really need to go whole hog on antibody testing as soon as possible to facilitate the return to normalcy. All right, let's uh, let's move back uh, pre pre coronavirus. Can you give me a little bit of your your background, your academic and professional background leading up to when you became uh, president at Idaho? What were the positions you held and the places you worked at before then? Sure, I got my PhD at Berkeley and postdoc actually at a biotechnology company working on HIV virus kind of a long time ago and it was early in that epidemic mm. and uh and then moved on to stanford for a second postdoc first professor professorship at university of kentucky in the biology department there and uh i did teaching and research uh as an assistant professor associate professor etc eventually became department chair at, at of that department and uh at one point was associate vice president for research for the university of kentucky and acting vice president for research then I became provost, chief academic officer at the University of South Dakota, uh, and and then in 2014 became president at the uh, University of Idaho. So when you were at Kentucky, can you tell me a little bit about the experience of the experience of holding high-ranking academic posts at an athletic power, such you know an SEC and a major basketball school, and perhaps in contrast to you know, that experience at, at, at the, uh, the other end of the division one spectrum. Sure. It was an interesting, uh, time. And I, I actually participated in the academic subcommittee of the NCAA recertification at the university of Kentucky. I think that was in 2005, very interesting experience because I got a real inside look at athletics at Kentucky. Um, and, um, and, and, and it was interesting in many, many ways to see that. Uh, obviously, Kentucky is something of a powerhouse, particularly in basketball. Um, and I, I got to know a few of the folks in athletics in that way, although just, you know, sort of peripherally. Um, it, you know, it's, it's, it's a fairly constant presence. Uh, but frankly, it, it's, it's so um, almost separate from the main part of the campus that as a faculty member, I... I, I I typically, I didn't have season tickets to the games. I, I like basketball, so I'd go to a game every now and then, either football or basketball. Um, and um, and a, as I was acting vice president for research, I actually also didn't have season tickets, but I did go to a few games a, in that capacity, and, and it was great fun. Um, uh, it, it's, it's certainly an important social event for the university and, f- and for the community. Uh, the rabid fans in in Kentucky, of course. Um, so important, but but sort of it, it felt very separate from the university in a lot of ways. It felt like something extra that happened at the university. Did did you feel particularly when you were in the uh, position of uh, 
of uh, running the research component of, of the university, did you feel as if the success of Kentucky athletics ever redounded to the benefit of the school's research efforts or academic mission such as you understood it? Because this is often a selling point. This is often the selling point of athletics and the, especially at places where athletics is successful is the school, the, the academics, the research, everything, the, all the boats rise along with athletics and athletics really does, you know, uh, create a, a kind of benefit for these things, even if they seem unrelated. Was that your experience? Did that feel tangible when you were at Kentucky, it, for example? It, it, it certainly didn't really feel very tangible at the, in the research arena. Um, it, it felt a little more so in terms of the visibility that you really do get to students, especially prospective students from Kentucky and elsewhere. Um, but I, I don't, I did not have the impression really that most students or many students came to the university solely because it had a great basketball team. And, and so it's really hard to estimate, I think for any university, just how many more students, for example, they get uh, because they have a great basketball team or a great football team. I mean, we do see influences. Alabama has has done extremely well since the you know outstanding success of their football team recently. Uh, of course, they've had a successful program in the past as well. But but uh, no, I didn't didn't feel that it had a huge payoff to the university in that respect. Uh, there was a small financial payoff to the university. The University of Kentucky Athletic Association was actually one of very few uh, across the nation that actually throws some money over the transom to the to the university. But it was something on the order of a million dollars during the roughly five years I was most involved in administration there. Right. And I think I think recently uh, LSU, a, fel a fellow SEC school, had, had also, I think they were giving a few million dollars a year to, from the athletic department to main campus, but then decided last year, I think, um, that they were no longer going to be able to do that, be do, yeah. right, making those payments, right? Which right. is, it, I I will say, as a research administrator, which is a part of my background, I always found it interesting that um, athletic departments don't even pay something called overhead or facilities and administrative costs. They're a different budget unit, et cetera, in a whole lot of ways. But as a research administrator, we very much dealt with the issue that research is, to some extent, this extra activity that research universities do. And one of the ways that that's recognized, in a sense, is that it, it, we charge the federal government facilities and administration costs to conduct research on our campuses. And that's money, typically around 40% of the value of a research grant that actually goes um, into the general university coffers to support things like the buildings in which the research is conducted and the staff who support the conduct of research. Is, and, right. Is there, is there any other component, department, anything of a university that behaves financially like the athletic department in the way that you're just describing? Where? Um, yeah, a little bit. The from a financial perspective, athletic departments are considered auxiliary enterprises, and I would say residence halls and dining operations are the other classic auxiliary okay. operations. And and in essence, all of those, athletics and, say, dining, are 
expected to be um, uh, self-funding. I mean, expected to be self-funding, and or or hoped to be self-funding. And I would say most dining operations actually are. I mean, you more or less set the dining rates to cover the cost of the dining enterprise, and uh, you know, and that's why room and board rates kind of change every year. Um, and interestingly, at most universities. Athletics are budgeted as an auxiliary enterprise, but there's almost always, with the exception of perhaps the top 20 most successful programs from a financial point of view, the Texases and Alabamas, that uh, that there's a subsidy coming from the university uh, general fund to the athletics program because those enterprises are not self-supporting. And that self-support usually doesn't even recognize the cost of of facilities, major athletic facilities to the university. So um, it, it's pretty rare for the, uh, for the, for the, for example, the football stadium to be um, um, unbonded. And it's pretty rare for the, you know, the swimming pool not to be just sort of a general expense the swim team gets to use. Right. Often essentially for free. Right. Which, right. you know, I'm not objecting to that. I'm just describing it. That's right. That's right. You became uh, president at Iowa, I believe you began Idaho. your, uh, I'm sorry, at, at Idaho, <laughs> my mistake, at They're Idaho, it, I believe you began in 2014, the spring of 2014. Yeah, yep, um, March of 2014. What should, what should we know about the University of Idaho, not Iowa, in the context of its home state and the students it serves and its financial picture? And then maybe you can also talk about the state of its athletic department upon your arrival to that job? Sure. Well, the University of Idaho is, is uh, the main research public university, land-grant university in Idaho. So in that respect, it's part of the sort of moral universities like University of Illinois in Illinois, for example. Uh, we, I believe, have the most prominent academic programs, not the largest university at this point or when I joined the university. We're at about 12,000 students. Boise State University is at around 24,000 students and is the largest public university in Idaho. Uh, and uh, the largest university in Idaho is BYU-Idaho, uh, and which is a private university, uh, also in southern Idaho in a small town called Rexburg, Idaho. Um, we have a full range basically of PhD programs, bachelor's programs, et cetera. Um, and um, uh, we're in a small town, uh, fairly remote from the capital, about 300 miles north of Boise. Uh, Boise is the state capital. About half the population of Idaho lives in the Boise area. Uh, Idaho is a relatively small state population wise, about 1.7 million. Um, and, uh, and, you know, we run the law program, the medicine program, et cetera, for the state of Idaho, as well as, uh, you know, that full range of, of um, undergraduate and graduate programs. And on the athletic side, we were in March of 2014, a uh, Division I NCAA program offering 16 sports, uh, football, the basketballs, you know, men's and women's uh, sports of various sorts. Uh, and we were at that time a member of the Sunbelt Conference for football. Although we we have had um, a 
a pretty rough history in terms of our conference uh, if affiliation in, in football. We were becoming, we, we were leaving the Western Athletic Conference at that time for the majority of our sports and moving to the big sky for things like basketball and uh, volleyball, et cetera. And what was the impetus for that? Well, the, um, the, the WAC was, was in a lot of flux and, and, its membership was changing, et cetera. And, um, and, and so there were a lot of interesting things happening uh, with the WAC. And um, we were actually able to exit and get an exit payment, which was beneficial to the university's budget, particularly the athletics department budget, which retained that payment, and joined the Big Sky, which offered us strong regional competition in basketball, volleyball, et cetera, at basically a lower cost than we would be able to achieve in the WAC. What was the influence or what still is the influence and impact of being a, a fellow resident of, with Boise State, of having Boise State in the same state as, sure. as Idaho, given that, you know, by my lights, Boise State is, is like the Horatio Alger of mid-major college sports. It's the school that went from a 1A program in the mid-90s to a national football power and BCS bowl invitee within about a decade. And it's my belief, looking at it from the perspective of other schools that view itself in league with Boise, uh, that, that Boise State is the face that launched a thousand sinking ships. You know, this was the, this was the great uh, athletic success story that a number of other you know, similarly sized schools, other public universities um, hold up as the potential that they could be if they just keep growing and rising and spending more money, uh, particularly in, in the sport of football. Um, but those are schools that aren't even necessarily located in the same state. What was it like to be their kind of veritable neighbor and, and watching them rise or at least dealing? I guess when you came along, they had already risen. Yeah, they they had been very successful for at least a decade by the time that I came. Uh, it was difficult. Uh, so Boise State is uh, it, it was actually began as a junior college and then became a four year university, and um, and then yes, they've been very successful in football. Uh, and I think we, we have to credit some of the vision of the people involved, including my colleague, Bob Kustra, who is a very successful president at Boise State. And, and frankly, they, they, they were very successful in football. They also actually have improved academically, which is uh, in some sense um, spurred a rivalry, not just in sports, but in academics um, between the University of Idaho and Boise State University. Uh, that's a little bit difficult for the state as well. Um, and, and so our alumni are constantly comparing the University of Idaho with a relatively unsuccessful football program, frankly, to Boise State University with an incredibly successful football program. Now, they, they have some huge advantages. Half the population of Idaho lives within driving distance of the stadium, easy driving distance of the stadium uh, there, uh, unlike the University of Idaho. Um, they have a, a television audience there. They, they have been able, through their success, to generate a na national television audience. Um, I think 
I think there has been payoff to them in terms of growth of enrollment, et cetera. But it is perhaps also worth noting that there is a subsidy from the university's general education fund to their athletic department, even to this day. So even despite their success, they haven't been able to stand on their own two feet. Um, That's right. Athletics, athletics is athletics is not uh, uh, budgetarily self-supporting at at Boise State University, to my knowledge. Um, now there's, you know, there's commercial benefit also to the to this to the city. People come to the city for for games, et cetera. So there's you know there's a lot of payoff to people outside the university as well. But uh, but yeah, the university itself is not making money on its overall athletics program. And it also seems, and and I don't know the, the the nuances of the narrative of their success closely enough, so that maybe you you're familiar with with a detail that might be relevant. But that there's also something quite lucky about what they have. Not even comparing them to Idaho, comparing them to to other schools that might be in the more populous area of their state. And again, can draw this analogy between them and Boise State and why we could certainly do what they're doing. We're in a bigger city than they are. Um, you know, it's Boise's not Los Angeles. Um, so so there's, there's, there's certainly a lot of other schools around the country that could see themselves as having all of the kind of contingencies and attributes necessary to have the same sort of success. And yet, really, we're talking about Boise State, and maybe there's a couple of other kinds of schools that, that people can draw, although the, the other analogies people I often hear are, are schools that really don't compare, like a Gonzaga in basketball, but that's a private university with a whole different kind of financial picture. But it does seem like they were also just had a great bit of luck in terms of the coaches they hired, that the teams just continually won and won and won every year. They had an, they had their own football stadium that they you know with the blue turf and they had their own bowl game years before there was this big explosion of of bowls so they were sort of guaranteed given if they won a certain number of games to to have a bowl um, yep. on on a year in year year out basis it does seem like they are more the exception to the rule than than any rule somebody should be necessarily subscribing to. Yeah, I, th- I think so. Um, I, I, you know, uh, another football program that I would compare them to, to some extent, is University of Louisville. Um, that football program had considerable success. They they did a number of things. Uh, actually, Louisville and Boise State did some very similar things in terms of both actually cultivated almost a partnership with ESPN. Uh, you know, it used to be said. Uh, in certain presidential circles that UofL would play anywhere, anytime that ESPN asked them to. <laughs> and, 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 and that, that's kind of true. And Boise state has changed all of its game times, et cetera, and schedule also to, to seek a television audience. And they were able to do so because of their success, because of their unique things like their blue turf, et cetera. And, and yeah, they have had very successful coaches. Um, but, it doesn't seem like too many people have been able to reproduce that success in football. Gonzaga is a good example, I think, of uh, a pretty successful, very successful basketball program. And I would say, you know, Gonzaga has has seriously increased their enrollment. And, um, and yeah, they're a private university. They're, they're not a research university, but they're certainly a very good uh, private college, and, and they've done very well. Um, it's kind of interesting, by the way, in Idaho – to contrast all of that 
with BYU-Idaho, which probably people don't, don't know, but um, BYU-Idaho, the, the Mormon church, of which I'm not a, I don't happen to be a member, but I know a little bit of the history from a book called The Innovative University, primarily, that was written about BYU-Idaho. Uh, um, BYU-Idaho grew from a junior college that the church had called Ricks College, which was actually a very successful intercollegiate junior college, especially, I think, their basketball program. When the church decided to make it a four-year program, they actually made the decision to stop offering intercollegiate athletics. They have a very big and strong club sport and intramural sport program, but they don't really do intercollegiate athletics in it anymore at all. And they've, of course, grown their enrollment tremendously, um, largely from their church membership, of course. And, and it, but it's interesting that they made a very conscious decision not to sustain the athletic program that they actually had um, prior to becoming a four-year college. So in, in 2016, I guess this is now two years into your presidency, is when, this, when Idaho made the decision to drop its football program from the FBS level to the FCS level. And yes. that decision drew major national attention, arguably more national attention than the football pro program had received to date. Um, the way that the decision was kind of understood maybe outside of around the rest of the country or as it was uh, reported was that this was a kind of voluntary and proactive rejection of the college sports norm being that you invest as much and you try to be as big in football as you possibly can be if you're a public university or a division one university. What should people know about the decision, what went into it and, and the sort of facts on the ground that led up to it? Yes. So it wasn't, perhaps strictly voluntary in the sense that you described, but, uh, but a pragmatic decision that I felt I had to make uh, to make the best of a difficult situation. So perhaps if I describe a little bit more the situation I inherited in 2014. In 2014, we had um, uh, just, I believe it was that year that we had completed a uh, four-year agreement with the Sunbelt Conference for membership. We had been independent in 2013, the year prior, and uh, independent for one year. And, and it became very quickly clear to me that the Sunbelt, um, probably within about six months, became clear to me that the Sunbelt was unlikely to renew our contract beyond that four-year period. Uh, and as matters developed, that was certainly true. Uh, there were a number of changes that occurred that sort of cemented that situation in place. One was that the Sunbelt Conference wanted to have a, uh, a league championship game. And the NCAA changed their, um, their rules. I think it was in late 2015. It used to be that you had to have a championship game, you had to have 12 teams. And they changed that to 10 teams with two divisions. And so the Sun Belt, when we were present, when we were members in 2014, had 11 teams. It had, uh, and, and sort of the odd men out who were only football affiliates, there were sort of nine core teams. And then um, New Mexico State University and the University of Idaho were these football affiliates, football only affiliates. Well, um, we knew fairly quickly that um, the Sun Belt was negotiating with uh, Coastal Carolina, 
So you have them join the Sun Belt, which would make 12, except you no longer needed 12 teams, really. Right. And, and, and the other change that occurred was a college football playoff change. College football playoff distributes money in sort of two primary ways. Most of the money from the college football playoff, uh, which is an organization separate from the NCAA, goes to the uh, to the big five conferences and the teams that participate in the in the true college football playoff uh, games the the big the really big bowl games um, and 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 then but uh, some of the money goes to the group of five conferences which includes for example the mountain west that Boise State is in but it also included the Sun Belt which uh, Idaho was in um, and When we first were present in 2014, uh, the college football playoff was basically saying we will we will give each conference a minimum of a million dollars per member. And then they actually changed that to a minimum of a million dollars per member to a maximum of 10 members. And and so the Sun Belt was often the lowest ranked conference in the group of five. And so they were getting, uh, say $11 million to split in, uh, in 2014, but in, and I forget if it's 2015 or 2016, the change that would occur, they would get $10 million. And if they brought in coastal Carolina, for example, and kept New Mexico state and university of Idaho, they'd have 12 members splitting $10 million, about $800,000 a year, as opposed to, if they, for example, terminated our four-year contracts or didn't renew them, actually, um, they could go to 10 members, they could still have their divisional playoff, and they could split the 10 million 10 ways and have a million dollars each rather than roughly $800,000 each. So it was quite clear that the Sunbelt Conference was making a value judgment of, you know, well, what value did University of Idaho or New Mexico State bring to the conference? And it was really not much because it's not like we brought in a bunch of fans that that conference is largely an Eastern conference. Uh, and, and so when we would travel out to one of their sites and I, I did that, we might bring 30 or 40 fans with us and literally that few when they would come to us, like university of South Alabama is a member of that conference, they might bring 30 or 40 fans and, you know, usually they were just parents of the football players uh, and, and people like that. So we don't bring fans. We don't bring a TV audience. What are we contributing? Uh, not much. So it became clear that they were not going to renew the contract. Um, they asked us to go through a process of making a presentation to them in a, a very specific format. I made that presentation within essentially minutes of making that presentation. It was decided our contract would not be renewed. Um, and, uh, and so, so if your contract's not renewed for that conference, what do you do? Um, you either seek affiliation with another conference, compete as an independent in FBS, or consider whether or not you should move to FCS. So that was really the three possible decisions that we we discussed as a leadership team in the university, including the athletics department. And so how did those, indeed it does. Yeah. How did those play out as you weighed them? Uh, So, so, you know, we just tried to, to think about those three and, and of course one of them uh, uh, 
would was seek another conference. And so the logical other conference would be the by this time the WAC had eliminated football, but there was discussion of whether they would they would potentially reinvigorate restart football. So I spoke with the WAC commissioner and basically he said, no, we're not interested in that. Uh, there would be other conferences like Mountain West Conference that would be geographically uh, would, would make a lot of sense. Boise State University was in that conference as well as, as some other, um, you know, Western universities, not unlike us, like University of Nevada, Reno and, and University of Wyoming, et cetera. And, and I had an initial discussion with, with some of those presidents, and they basically said, look, we're actually in a kind of similar position to the Sun Belt. We have actually more members than we need. We have no desire to add members. And frankly, you're not the strongest member that we would you know, seek out. You don't, have, you don't bring us a TV audience. You don't bring us this. You don't bring us that. This, we're just not ever going to consider that. And, and frankly, from an objective perspective, that made sense to me. Uh, I contacted another couple of conferences where I had friends and, and, uh, and they basically said, no way. I mean, that just doesn't make any sense for us. So I saw no way we'd get into a conference. Now conferences can change, et cetera, but I just didn't see anything likely to change. In fact, if anything, even at that time, I felt it was more likely that conferences might decrease their membership than increase. And the college football playoff was probably more interested in centralizing their money rather than distributing it to more conferences. So absolutely. You know, so if so, you were just if you were just hell bent on staying FBS in spite of all of what you just said, what would have been the move? So was just, so, so what what you'd have to do is go independent, and in fact, that's exactly what New Mexico State has done, for example, because they also did in fact get the non-renewal from the Sun Belt. Um, so they they chose to stay FBS and to, and to go independent. We chose to, to go to the big sky and go FCS. Um, so some things, if you go independent, um, you don't get any college football playoff money unless you actually participate in the college football playoff. And the odds that Idaho would ever participate in the college football playoff uh, are essentially zero. Right. And, and so you're not going to get any college football playoff money. Um, you are going to have to schedule games and you, you have to schedule games. I, I forget the exact rules, but they have to be primarily with other FBS teams. And you, since you're not in a conference, you have essentially no guaranteed games with fellow conference members. Almost all conferences have, have rules that basically you're going to play like eight or nine, often nine games against conference members. But now all of a sudden you don't have any of those games scheduled. So what you have to do is either travel to games where somebody wants an opponent uh, and, you know, they have a, a blank on their schedule or you uh, have to pay people to come to your stadium to play you. And both those things are actually expensive and, and they don't tend to lead to, you know, any kind of sustained rivalry or interest or anything like that, right. because, uh, you know, these catches catch can games. And then the other, the other thing you have to do, and we were doing it already, but is schedule, um, schedule specific games against opponents who will pay you a lot of money right. to go play them. So you go to Penn state and you get a, a thwacked you know, for a million bucks. <laughs> yeah. You get, a, you, essentially you get a million bucks and you get, and, you, and a guaranteed loss. Right. And, uh, and we had done this for years and, and, and actually are still doing some of that. So, so at any rate, 
what you face if you go independent as a University of Idaho is an incredibly hard road where you're going to schedule against other independents. So you're probably going to play New Mexico State home and home. You might play Liberty home and home. You might play Massachusetts home and home because these are some of the other independents at that time um, that were in the same boat sort of struggling for games. And, and then, you know, you'll go get whacked by Penn State and Florida. And, and then you, you probably are going to have to pay to bring in some folks and you have a hole in their schedule and they, they're willing to play you, you know, and it, it's going to be just sort of a random selection every year. And, and it's going to cost you money to bring those teams in. And it doesn't and, really afford you an opportunity in any realistic sense to dig yourself out of this hole. You're set oh, no, up never th- to be able to have a winning record in that that's position. That's right. I mean, you probably have to schedule three minimum big guarantee games. We had been doing two a year, but we probably, when as we discussed this, we thought, well, we're going to probably have to go to three. That means essentially you're guaranteed to start the year 0-3. And, and, and then... Yeah, you may be able to beat one of the other independents or somebody that you schedule or something like that. But uh, but frankly, most places we we had a very poor record in football historically. We were one of the lowest performing FBS teams in the nation, and and typically people bring you in to beat you. <laughs> and so right. so we're we're probably going to have a losing record every year, and it just it it seemed very unsatisfactory. And and there's no end to that in sight. Uh, because as I said, it doesn't look like there's any conference that's likely to want new members. And particularly, they're not going to want new members who've been playing this random selection of teams and having a losing season every single year. Right. Nonetheless, there is this argument made by both kind of athletic department supporters and then even some other types of, of uh, interested parties that there's a there's a value in maintaining the highest level of football at your school, even if you've never been terribly successful at it. That there's that it presents a draw for students and boosters, um, and ultimately by doing that is a financial net positive for the university. It's a kind of marketing opportunity for reaching out, particularly to out of state potential students, that is otherwise impossible for many schools. In other words, it is better to have a bad FBS football tr- uh, program that repeatedly shows financial loss than no FBS football program at all. So, I mean, again, probably no clear crystal balls on these kinds of decisions, but, but a couple of thoughts. One is by joining the big sky, we actually are competing with regional schools that do have some visibility in the region from which most of our students come. So if that visibility argument holds water, we, we do retain some visibility. Now, we, we don't get on TV a lot, uh, certainly when you're playing a, a big sky team. But frankly, the only times Idaho is going to get on TV is when they're getting beat up by Penn State or Florida. Right. And it's some kind of warm up game. And in fact, we still play those games. Um, right. Now, we make less money when we play those games. And that is one definite uh, argument for remaining FBS is that FBS teams, uh, when you go play a Florida or an Auburn, we were typically getting uh, north of a million dollars, uh, $1.2, $1.4 million. As an FCS team, I don't know what our contracts will be, but I, I've 
I worked at University of South Dakota. They were an FCS team. And I know that typically it's more like $600,000 today if you go play a, a big FBS team. So it's, it's about half. So you are going to have less revenue potential for that sort of thing. But the, the visibility is actually probably better because your visibility used to be really restricted to the games, the big guarantee games against the Floridas. And it still is. You're still playing those. And and so the national visibility is very similar, actually. But you now have regional visibility with Montana, Montana State, et cetera, that is probably better than what you had as an FBS team. Because, I mean, frankly, we weren't getting kids from Louisiana, even though we we're playing like three, four games a year in Louisiana. Right, right. Did, do you think, looking back on it, that it had to get to the point where the Sun Belt forced the question upon the university for the university to have made this decision, even politically speaking, that without that impetus, there would have just been too much pushback, even again, if the financial picture looked exactly the same? Um, yeah. And the financial picture actually is worth realizing that the financial picture in football is actually not that bad in some respects. Now it is hard to evaluate how much it costs, how much you gain from visibility of a sport like that. It is probably among the more visible sports, football and men's basketball. And to some extent, women's basketball are really the only particularly visible sports that, right. a, that a university plays. So, but we've actually done some pretty careful financial look at the university of Idaho and Football is probably pretty close to a break-even sport as as an FBS sport, and as an FCS sport, it probably also is break-even. You you're going to make less revenue, but you have fewer expenses. So um, so it's probably kind of similar mm. from a financial point of view. It, that actually didn't drive the decision. the The decision primarily was was that uh, if you stayed independent, you know. That was just an awful sort of dead end decision to make. And so independent FBS, it, we, we didn't have the option of being conference affiliated FBS. That, that option was going away. So the decision really was between FBS independent and FCS Big Sky. And FCS Big Sky uh, was probably better financially than FBS independent because of the need for all these, you know, bringing in guarantee games, et cetera, to fill out your schedule right. uh, and was not a dead end uh, from my perspective. Now, I, I, boosters have some different opinions on, on that. Yeah, what was, what, how would you describe the, the booster various, response? The booster response and maybe just the various kind of stakeholder categories, students, yeah. faculty, administration, and, and, and of course, Boosters. Yeah, so it's, it's 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 interesting. So I got very little sense of what the students were thinking. I, I did talk quite a bit to student leadership, et cetera, and student leadership at that time was quite supportive of that decision. Uh, um, and and faculty were very supportive of the decision, but for sort of the wrong reason because they actually thought that moving to FCS would save a lot of money and that in some way there would be more money available for things other than football mm. by having made this decision. But that's not really true that, you know, it might've been that there was more money or less, less expense than had we gone FBS independent, but they were really in their minds comparing FBS conference to, 
to FCS, which is really not the right comparison. Interesting. Um, and uh, but generally, faculty were very supportive of this decision. Um, the national media were pretty supportive of this decision, I would say, in general. I, I yeah, why do you think that was? Well, again, to some extent, because they didn't understand it. They didn't understand that the decision, again, they were a little like the faculty. They were like, oh, this is, an, this is a very uh, good decision that will save his university money, when in fact, it might have saved money over the other alternative, but it didn't really save us money relative to being FBS conference. And that's really what they were thinking of. Um, it's interesting to look at the New Mexico State University situation, because as I understand it, I no longer have access to the to the college football databases that really would give you this information. I believe the first year New Mexico State University was independent, they spent almost $3 million in game guarantees to their opponents to come play them. And if we had had to spend $3 million or anything like it, that would have driven our football program drastically into the red. Right. So, right. so that is probably the, the, the order of magnitude problem that we, we avoided by going FCS. Um, I think that they were a little more aggressive and spent a little more money than I probably would have advocated. So maybe not quite that bad, but something. But that's a picture. I mean, it's the only other school that's in the general same part of the country that was in the similar situation as you. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, um, and what about boosters? boosters? Even when we talk about boosters, I think this depends on the university. There are some boosters even for schools that might not seem to have real moneyed people interested in it who do and can be, you know, turning off boosters who might be interested in athletics could really foreclose, you know, millions of dollars coming into the university in any different way, shape and form. And then other schools don't have those kinds of people, but we talk about them as if they're an important, you know, they're they're equally on equal footing in terms of influence without yeah. obviously naming specific boosters, can you kind of characterize the the influence of boosters and the response from the ones that you thought were most important to uh, sure. convincing on this front? Well, we, we, we did talk to boosters and donors, uh, which is kind of an overlapping set, uh, before the decision and, of course, after the decision as well. And, uh, and, and, and there's quite a range of reactions. Um, so, uh, so first off, we looked at the responses that we would get by email or letter or those kinds of responses from individuals. And, and what's interesting here is, and I've gotten in a little bit of trouble for talking about this in this way. If you look at individuals, you know, telling you something about that decision, about 80% of the individuals said good decision. Hmm. And, and, but their emails are almost all the same. Good decision. Glad you made it. Thanks. Hmm. Okay. And then about 20% of the individuals who correspond with you are vituperatively against this decision. And they typically send you 10 emails. Okay. <laughs> and the emails are also rather similar. You are the stupidest, worst president I've ever seen in my life. This is a terrible decision. You, you will cause the demise of the university. Some subset, some, some, some group of things like that. Right. Okay. And so in total, they're probably, we receive more pieces of communication from people who are against the decision than those who are for it. But 80% of the people were for it, just not passionate about it. And, and that's just of who, 
you know, actually chose to send you something. It's hard to say what sort of the silent folks are out there are actually. Right. The thinking. phenomenology of uh, Yelp reviews as well. Yes. Yeah, very self-selective to, uh, to certain types of people having certain feelings right. about something. What about political and, leaders and, in and, the and state? And then, well, and then in donors, if you don't mind, I'll oh, sure. talk to that. So certainly uh, we have had a very strong uh, athletic donor, um, uh, great family who this completely alienated and, um, and they, they stopped donating and, and participating, et cetera. But most of the donors did not stop. Um, in fact, when I became president, we were getting about $20 million a year in donations. And my last year we were over 50. No, that's uh, a, I assume that's across the board, not just for the, that's athletics. across the board, not just athletics. Okay. Otherwise you would have been real and really, <laughs> if you were getting that for athletics, you should have been, a. You could have been yeah, a, uh, a big the, five. The, the, yeah. the largest donation ever to the university was when I got in my last year of $10 million for a new athletic facility, a new basketball arena. Mm. And, and so we, we got significant athletic donations. Now, to the football program especially, we had varied from about a million dollars a year to $2 million a year of donations uh, over the last roughly 10 years. And actually, um, we've continued at about that level. And that's a relatively low level compared to even our FCS peers, Montana, Montana state do much better than that. And, and they did better than that before, and they're still doing better than that. Um, so, uh, so our program has always been very modestly supported by our donor base. Um, and, uh, and, and it hasn't changed a lot. It, 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 it went down when we announced the decision, it went back up a bit. It's sort of about the same. So if you look, our average donation, we, we're getting about our average donation over the last 10 years right now. I don't have the current figures, of course. And then I wanted, um, I, yeah, I had asked about um, political leaders in the state. Uh, political leaders. Yeah, so the political leaders in the state um, um, were pretty silent about it, frankly. I, hmm. I, I, had a, I know well the, the legislative leadership and have a good sense of that. And they fundamentally didn't seem to care one way or the other, frankly. And uh, the governor was really not that engaged. And the current governor, whom I know better and who is an alum, uh, felt it was a good decision. Hmm. Interesting. When, Interesting. He, when he wasn't yet governor, he was lieutenant governor at the time of the decision. That might have made it easier. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. For, for, for him to, to publicly uh, hold that view. Um, and, and he wasn't very public in that, but I know that's, you know, I know that that's how he feels. So um. how much of this decision ultimately do you think played into the fact that you are now a professor of biology and not still the university president at Idaho? Some. I think it raised a lot of noise around my presidency that was not welcome or positive. Um, it was not the only factor. Um, I. I. I came in as an agent of change. I made a lot of changes, not just in the football program. And, and I think overall, um, um, you know, we reached a point where the, the board and I were uh, not, not working together as well as we should and, uh, and realized it was, it was time to stop. So as you kind of explained the story and, and laid it out compared to what I understood about this um, before we began talking, it, 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 you were kind of characterizing yourself much differently than what you were not the sort of anti-football president who 
just willy-nilly decided to get rid of it for reasons of either saving money or or just because you didn't didn't want to uh to be engaged in in that in the kind of fbs football um and yet you have right. you probably have a reputation for somebody who who really is sort of anti-college football president i i think i have that reputation and, and it and it isn't really correct i'm not exactly anti-college football now i i have some reservations about um how much money we we as a nation spend on athletics um college athletics i i and and particularly at lesser schools, frankly, which aren't able to sustain their programs and use general education funding to, to do that. I have some reservations about the physical damage that football does to participants. But, um, and, and frankly, being college president, I saw more of that and, and, and feel worse about it. Uh, but the decision that I made, and I'm trying to be just deadly honest, was largely a pragmatic one saying, you know, um, I've got this option, FBS independent, which looks awful, or this option, FCS, member of the Big Sky, regionally relevant conference, which looks pretty good. I mean, you know, it looks okay. It looks up. It looks like it doesn't. It's not going to cost us money in the long run. It'd be about cost neutral, and 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 we'll be visible regionally as as we would like to be. So it was more pragmatic than that. It, it wasn't. You know that in, it wasn't in an ideological decision, or it wasn't, it wasn't a very ideal. That's right. It was not really an ideologic decision. And um, if I had it to do over again, I might more seriously consider the issue of eliminating football because of the physical damage that I think it does do to the participants. And I'm, I'm not sure that that's that's a very good, healthy, wholesome thing for a university to promote. But at the time I made the decision, that was not. Um, that was not a key factor in the decision. Now we're sort of talking in the middle of a windstorm. And so I'll, I'll ask maybe up to February, 2020 for your perspective on this, which is, can you be a unit? Could you be a university president at a division one university who is not a champion of football? Or if you, you, you can't even be, I mean, could you even be neutral towards, towards the value of football to the campus to say nothing of the value of college football to society. Um, is, is that just a non-starter if you don't show sufficient uh, support for, for the enterprise? I think it, you know, at any place that has a football program, it's a non-starter. And in fact, I, I, I have gone back out to look for other positions. And one of the, one of those positions. Um, you never know why you don't get a position really, but in at least one of those positions, I was told it was concern about my attitude towards football, mm. even though that question had never actually been asked in the, in the interview. Hmm. And is, is this something you'll just live with, or do you feel obligated to sort of defend the decision as pragmatic in the, in that context? It, it depends a little bit when I, <laughs> And I'm not going to pretend that I've I've done this the best possible way, but um, you know, if if you're applying to a school which has a strong athletic tradition and a strong football program, I think it's of some value to explain that you value athletics and, and et cetera. Um, 
by the way, both of my sons were NCAA athletes, not in football, and and had generally quite good experiences. And so I, I'm actually a very strong backer of athletics. Um, and if football didn't cause the damage to participants that I think it does, I would actually probably be a pretty strong supporter of football, but f- I would still feel you needed to be pragmatic about you know, how much money you're spending on it, et cetera. And, 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 and at least think about that and see if that's a a wise use of university resources, just like a president should do for any program. So last month, the NCAA board of governors voted to decrease the allotment. The uh, NCAA gives the schools from a total of about 600 million to 225 million then lead one, the FBS athletic director organization surveyed its member ADs at the beginning of this month and found that most didn't envision still a greater than 30% revenue drop for next school year. I want to talk with you a little bit about looking ahead across the landscape here because I find that to be a very rosy picture, 30% revenue drop for athletic for many athletic departments. In some ways, I can't and in this, you know, we don't have our crystal ball. I have a very hard time imagining a college football season this coming year. So a lot of this depends on whether or not that happens to say nothing of then if there's an interruption or cancellation of college basketball. But if there's not a college football season alone, or if it's severely limited, you know, there are so many act of God out clauses for licensing deals and game contracts to say nothing about all the ticket revenue and don- and donations that would be um, eliminated for various athletic departments that I, I, I can envision 50% revenue drops for a number of places. And then you don't even have really the opportunities and the backstops. I mean, everybody is going through this at the same time. So, you know, whereas if a athletic department at a single university might have suffered some unique financial challenge Conceivably, there's an opportunity to get some funds from the state legislature or from main campus, but everybody else is is taking this, this uh, an equal, if not worse, hit as athletic departments. So those opportunities wouldn't be presumably yeah. there in this year. All of all of which is to say there is a massive financial reckoning coming to lots of athletic departments. <laughs> It seems like they're going, a lot of university presidents and athletic directors are going to be in the position, forced into the position of making cuts to programs. Possibly conferences are going to change. Other people are going to be faced with having to make the football decision that you might, that you made um, a few years ago. What, what, what do you anticipate to be the, uh, the full extent of, of this reckoning and how bad can this get for athletic departments? Well, hard to say, of course, but, but one of the things I think it's really important to do when you think about this is to, is to approach it, not uh, as college athletics as a monolithic enterprise, but to understand some of the differences between, for example, the, the power five conferences and the group of five conferences and, and some of those kinds of things. And so, you know, if, if you're a power five, very successful program, uh, my understanding is, you know, that 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 basketball hit is significant. Uh, I 
I believe some conferences, though, are using their reserves to essentially cover the deficit. Now, if it's a one-year deficit from just the NCAA basketball tournament cancellation effectively, I don't think too many people think that the NCAA tournament will be canceled again next year. And so they're presuming that that revenue will come back. And, and, they, and, and so what they've done is use their reserves to cover a one-time expense, and that's what reserves are for. So that's okay. Um, uh, but it does leave you with no other or vastly diminished reserves, which is a problem if there are other aspects of the storm, as you've described. So now, if football should be canceled in fall, um, that's going to be huge because football typically, even even at a place like Kentucky, is actually typically a larger revenue generator than basketball. So. If if that in some way is canceled or, or downsized or whatever, um, that that's just a, another huge financial hit. I think you're also quite right that in general we're not going to see state legislatures stepping up because they're you know they're going to be dealing with probably decreased tax revenues. What do they do? We're, we're going to go into sort of a recession mentality, if not a rather large recession. And the recession was not good to higher education in 2008, 2009. And I just don't see it being, you know, great for higher education in, in 2020, 2021. Um, but uh, on the other hand, I will say that not everybody's the same. So I'll go back to sort of the Idaho situation. Uh, Idaho's never been very successful in basketball. We've always been in conferences that aren't very successful in basketball. We frankly didn't get a whole lot of money from the NCAA for our basketball program. And so, yeah, we suffer a little bit of a loss, but not huge. Uh, football, um, again, if it's not played, the good news is you won't lose all that much money because it's kind of a break-even proposition. And if you don't have the expenses associated with playing it, you probably, and you, and you don't have the revenue, you probably won't really actually lose all that much money, but you will lose some. So you can probably kind of weather that storm okay. The big problem, I think, for places more like Idaho, where there's a significant general education subsidy to athletics, about 30 40% of the budget is pretty typically uh, that subsidy. Um, now, it's very likely you're going to operate in an environment where the university itself has got significant financial stress. Um and that stress comes from enrollment declines uh, of various sorts. Um, I was looking at the University of Idaho. We have about 150 international freshmen, just to give you an idea, per year that are coming in. I can't believe that we're going to get any international freshmen next year. Now, now we may hold on to the students who were freshmen and they became sophomores and sophomores to juniors, et cetera, although I think we'll probably lose a fair number of them too. But let's just take 150 international freshmen. Almost all of them at a place like University of Idaho pay full tuition and, and, so, and, and room and board. So you're going to lose something on the order of $6 million from 150 people. Um, that's a huge amount of money for a place like us. Um, and, and you, it's harder to calculate or to imagine what's going to happen on that sort of domestic enrollment place like university of Idaho, 75% of our students come from in state surveys are showing that there, most people are predicting a 10 to 20% freshman enrollment drop. 
again, I think that the continuing students are likely to come back just as much as they ever were. So you're really only getting get, let's say it's a 10% freshman enrollment drop. That's about 3% of your tuition revenue because, because of the, of the way things roll out at a place like here. That's, that's another, um, you know, probably close to, to four and a half million dollars. So all of a sudden you're facing, you know, something like a $10 million deficit um, just from those two things. Let's assume state appropriation stays the same. And, and you've been giving um, something on the order of $6 million to the athletics department. Um, do you want to keep doing that? <laughs> and and uh, um, it's, it's, so there's going to be a lot of hard decisions made at universities, it seems to me. The, um, there was a study, I think a day or so ago, done by Seton Hall's business school. It was a relatively small study, but it was trying to uh, drill down at whether or not sports fans would feel comfortable attending sporting events. And they found that nearly three in, three out of four respondents said they would not attend games without a vaccine for coronavirus yeah. develop. Um, I certainly wouldn't be in any large population before there was some sort of herd immunity or vaccine. Would you advise anybody to be attending a sporting event from your perspective as a uh, biologist and viro virologist um, before either we have well-declared herd immunity or before there's, we're all vaccinated? I, I would not urge people to attend any large public events uh, of, of that sort, uh, you know, football game, basketball game, et cetera, uh, until we understand and have a very high uh, immunity population. And I, I think it would be very weird. And this suggestion is probably impractical, but you are seeing it in, in Italy and in Germany. Um, they're talking about basically a return to public life license based upon your antibody status. Right. And, and so if you're antibody positive, yeah, I think it's probably safe for you to go to the game, but you have to know that. Um, it's not safe for you to take somebody of unknown status with you. Uh, so, you know, if, if you're antibody positive, but your kid isn't, you can't take your kid with you. Um, right. that sort of thing. So, and, and, uh, you know, I just, I, I'm not sure how that will work, uh, at, at a stadium where you literally have to present your antibody static status to enter a stadium. It, it, it seems awkward to me, uh, possible, but awkward. Um, uh, and, uh, uh but no, I wouldn't urge anybody who wasn't uh, antibody positive. And the, I, as a virologist, I think if you're antibody positive, you are likely to be, be protected at least for a year. We don't know that, but that's typical with other coronaviruses. So, um, so you know, it's probably safe uh, if you are antibody positive. That was Chuck Staben. I'd like to thank him for joining me on the podcast. You can subscribe to The Intercollegiate via Apple iTunes, Google, 
Spotify, Stitcher, and other major podcasting apps. You can also listen to the show off the website by going to theintercollegiate.com. Though it's gone a bit fallow over the last month, I would still encourage you to subscribe to our email dispatch newsletter of intent, which can be found by going to theintercollegiate.substack.com. That should do it for this week. Please stay safe and healthy and conscientious. There certainly can't be too much of any of that at a time like this. Thank you for listening, and until next time, I'm Daniel Libet.